Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami and infographics designer and journalist and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories and the music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone, an app that turns data into tunes. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You'll get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. Forever. Hi, Simon. Ever. Hey. <laughs> this, do, we, do we say happy Christmas now? This is like near, we're near the, the end of the year. Happy, yeah, holidays, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yeah. yeah. Happy, happy holidays, everybody. Merry Christmas. Exactly. Whatever you prefer. Yeah. We are getting really close. Really, really close. I, I know. I know. We are joined today by a friend of ours. Um, who is just like one of the nicest people in data journalism, the brilliant Scott Klein. He is the deputy managing editor at uh, ProPublica. He is award-winning. He's also a co-founder of Document Cloud, um, which anybody who works with PDS and journalism will know. And he really oversees the kind of the interactive projects that um, ProPublica puts together, which are incredible and have all long been innovative and far-sighted. Yeah, and we, we've both uh, known Scott for quite a long time. I mean, I, I don't remember when we when I met him. I think that he was at a um, at a NICAR conference, the Investigative Reporting Reporters uh, Association's conference that happens every year. I think that he was there years ago. And um, I mean, I immediately thought about him, what you just said. I mean, he's like, the nicest person in the world of data journalism. He's such a great, it is such true. a great person. Yeah, it is yeah. true, and you can, and he also knows so much. Oh, especially yeah, about absolutely. the history of data journalism. He's just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super he used cool. he used to have. We didn't ask this during the conversation, but it was on my list. But he used to have a newsletter about the history of data visualization in the news. He does know more about that, doesn't he, than anybody? Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was incredible because he was sort of like discovering all these examples of old graphics from American, particularly American newspapers. And mm. I even told him once, you should do a book about this because this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but obviously he's working in stuff that's very current as well. So yeah. should, we, should we dive in? I think that we should dive in, yes. But before we do so, um, I think that it, a, a little bit of a warning for our listeners is... Um, is important. So Scott was in at ProPublica's newsroom during our conversation. So you will hear uh, some background noises during the during the chat. Some you know people you know, just just typing on the keyboard or voices in the background. So don't be bothered by that. It's just the fact that he was at the newsroom. I think that that's the only thing. Otherwise, the conversation was a lot of fun and incredibly informative. Exactly. Even though it doesn't live up to our usual high technological standards. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, <right>. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> All right, All right. Let's, di- let's dive in. Hi, I'm Scott Klein. I'm a deputy managing editor at ProPublica in New York. 
Um, I work with the teams that are at the intersection of journalism and technology. Um, that includes a team called the News Applications Team, uh, which builds our uh, interactive databases um, and the stories that have uh, big uh, data presentations in the middle of them. Hi, Scott. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is actually uh, a joy for us because um, I know it's a bit of a conflict, but Scott's really a friend as well as being kind of one of the most innovative people that I know working in data journalism. So maybe let's kick it off, um, Scott, re-talking about the work that ProPublica does in the field and the kind of the kind of projects that you're, you're, you've been involved in and you're proud of. Absolutely. So I can talk a bit about the team that I founded here at ProPublica. Um, you know, ProPublica has lots of different ways that we do data journalism. Um, all the way from, uh, you know, our long-form investigative reporters, some of whom uh, are deeply knowledgeable about data and use data um, in their reporting. Uh, we also have a team of dedicated data specialists called the Data Reporting Team, um, who are data scientists, some of whom have PhDs in quantitative fields, uh, who help make sure that when we're using data in a story, it's been integrity checked, that any method, any, uh, um, any, Models that we build for our stories are done correctly, um, have been bulletproofed, are up to the standards of all of our other journalism. Um, and we also have, and, and this is the team that I help run uh, along with the editor of the team, uh, who's in Ken Schwenke, uh, is the news applications team. And that team specializes in creating uh, interactive journalism uh, using that data. Um, and those have lots and lots of different kinds, different sort of subkinds, but uh, some of them are interactive stories um, that uh, maybe have a large map or a, a, a big way to uh, help people understand the data in the middle of what is otherwise a narrative story. Uh, but we also create interactive databases that let people look up facts about themselves um, and about their communities to help them understand big national phenomena um, in terms of their own data um, and also um, to um, to uh, help them lead better, safer lives and to make better consumer decisions. I always associate um, ProPublica with apps. I know that you know you do a ton of innovative work, but so I kind of really feel like you led the way on on apps. I wonder why that was, and it, it, was it just a kind of reflection of the change of technology that suddenly you know people are using phones more, so apps really work well on phones and more personal. And... I mean. In many ways, it was a, it was an opportunistic use of some new technology. Um, so when I joined ProPublica, which is the very beginning in 2008, a couple of things were happening simultaneously. Um, we had as we had the um, the earliest days of very rapid development frameworks like uh, Django and Ruby on Rails that made it so that you could build out. Uh, really complex data, interactive data um, websites, really, um, very quickly without having to kind of monkey around with uh, the kind of inner workings of a database. You didn't have to sort of come up with a data schema. You didn't have to do a whole lot of the things that made uh, doing, um, you know, kind of very complex data programming hard. You didn't have to do that anymore. At the same time, uh, things like uh, cloud hosting was really kind of coming into its own. Um, it was the earliest days of the Amazon Web Services. And also, um, the government started putting out lots and lots more data. And so it was the confluence of all of these things made it possible for us as a newsroom 
to put data resources together faster than we ever could. In fact, as fast as reporters could write a story. And before that, none of that was possible. And so we never even sort of dreamed of doing things like that, except in things like sports and the weather, which were, you know, sort of parts of kind of much longer term development projects, you know, where you could kind of put together your baseball data stuff or your weather data stuff um, and then use it as a newsroom for a really long time. So it was uh, it was kind of an opportunistic use of data. And at the same time, you know, this kind of flowering of open data coming out of the government. So um, as long as you mentioned Django just a minute ago, I think that we are going to take the conversation in that direction because we are recording this conversation on December the 8th, uh, 2021. And just today, uh, you tweeted a thread in which you talk about innovation that was driven by newsrooms, innovation, technological innovation that happened in, in newsrooms. Among them, you mentioned Django, but you also mentioned many other technologies. Uh, can you can you reflect a little bit on the, can you reproduce can you say what you said in the in the Twitter thread that you had and discuss it a little bit deeper perhaps I will I will do it I'll do it without looking at my tweet so you can see if it matches see if I'm uh, see see if I uh, if I remember well but uh, yeah so the tweet you're talking about um, today is the uh, it's the Django a new Django just came out it's a Django anniversary. Um, and Django, if people don't know, was invented at the uh, Lincoln Journal World. Uh, by Adrian Holovati and the team of people who uh, created it because they needed it, um, kind of out of the needs of a journalism and news products team um, at a new at a, at a local newsroom, um, and so and it was an example where you know news was a very early adopter, in fact, an inventor um, of a robust and new kind of of code um, that made all sorts of things outside news possible. So we really led the way. Um, but it is by, by no means the only uh, example of that. Um, I mentioned Backbone and D3 and Svelte, um, and which are, which are all um, uh, JavaScript uh, related, JavaScript libraries to do various things you need to do if you're a newsroom, um, all of which either got their start in newsrooms or were built by people who spent big chunks of their careers in news. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, so news has actually always been um, at the forefront of technology, especially when it comes to things like data um, and kind of building out news products as well. But it goes back much further even than that. Um, if you take a look at the 19th century, and I'm an amateur historian, and I, and I do a lot of that, um, the telegraph, the rise of the telegraph um, really sort of tracks with the rise of the newspaper in the middle of the 19th century. Um, newspapers were early adopters, heavy, heavy adopters of the telegraph. It's why it's one of the reasons why the word telegraph um, is in the names of so many newspapers. Um, you know, the way that newspapers reported elections in the U.S. tracks exactly with the rise of telegraphs. Um, and so, you know, we were, and that's, you know, telegraph is around 1844, which is around when the first real election nights happened. Um, and news used the telegraph um, almost as soon as it was invented to report out elections. And so we were always kind of heavy, hev heavily technical, um, all the way through steam printing presses, photolithography, um, and on and on, radio and TV, and on and on. News was always um, an early adopter of technology and a great innovator in technology. It's so interesting. It's weird that it seems almost counterintuitive to say that, because obviously, you look at you know, the history of news, it's all around innovation, even like, you know, uh, teletext, 
on the TV uh, when, uh, when I was yeah, growing up. And sure. When I when I joined the Guardian, we were in this building that was uh, you know, originally from the '60s, and there were still traces of some of the innovations that have kind of have been very new when they're bought in, like sticking cop- copying tubes, you know, pneumatic tubes, which yep. would fly around the building and down to the printers. Those, those traces were still there, even though obviously they'd moved on. Um, I mean, I mean when you when yeah. you, I mean, when you think about it, the you know what they. Oh, you, a daily miracle, right? Which is the fact that you're able to yeah. package, you know, between 30 news stories, you know, on a weekday, along with all of the advertisements and all of the various kind of editions that that are printed. It is incredible that we've been able to do that for hundreds of years. And the way that we can do that literally every day, never missing a day, um, is by being heavy adopters of technology. I had a news editor called Paul Johnson, the guy who used to say, we're publishing the equivalent of a novel every yeah. single day. You know, 200,000 odd words coming out on paper, getting out into the world, traveling th- you know, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles. Uh, it's incredible to think that. And you know, one of the weird things about working in a, a tech company now, as I do, is how much actually some of the skills you learn in the newsroom are incredibly useful, like the speed you have to do stuff. Thinking, oh, how can I do this quickly? What's a, what's a new way that I could get that done so it so it happens on time? And it's not something people really think about enough is how much that that can teach us now. Whatever you're doing, really. No, no, absolutely. It is also true of the world of visualization. I mean, one of the reasons why I can produce visualization so quickly is that I was trained in the world of news. Right, I I, I led into news and. We had to produce, you know, full-page infographics in a matter of three or four hours, which is sort of like unthinkable in the corporate world, right? But when you get to that world or you get to consulting, you carry those skills. You carry right, those right. Skills, right. Probably on a subject that when you woke up that morning, you didn't know anything about. You know, so you had to learn enough um, to, and you had to had to know how to order your questions so that you would you would know only the things you needed to know to be able to build the infographic, get all of the facts right, find the insight that readers most needed um, in you know seven hours, and then go home and do it again the next day. So as long as we are talking about insights that readers that readers should get, why don't we uh, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about the projects that ProPublica has been producing in the in the last year or year and a half? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I want to talk about. Uh, I'll talk briefly about a bunch of projects if I can. Um, at the beginning of the year, during the uh, the insurrection on January sixth at the Capitol, um, we. Uh, had one of the reporters in our newsroom, the data reporters in our newsroom actually got a trove of very high resolution videos taken by participants in the riot. Um, and, you know, again, back to what we were talking about with having to turn things around really quickly. Um, we built an interactive um, that, that let people kind of go through all of these. First of all, we had to identify, we had to figure out um, how to look at the metadata inside the videos to figure out who was posting videos that were actually in the Capitol because every video you take on your phone um, carries um, geodata in it. And so we used that to figure out who uh, was uh, actually in inside the Capitol or on the Capitol grounds um, taking this video. And then we were uh, we actually had a very large contingent of Republicans going through the videos, making sure that they were germane to the story. Um, and we were able to publish, I think, only within a few days 
um, a big interactive project that let you kind of go through and see, we called it What Parlor, which was the social media network, um, which it was being taken down at the time we were going up with the story, um, What Parlor saw at the Capitol. Um, and we let people thumb through hundreds of videos um, and see from the participants' eyes um, what was going on inside the Capitol that day. Um, that's how we started the year. Um, again, speaking about a project where um, when we woke up in the morning, we didn't know something was about to happen. And by the time we went to sleep that night, we were already building um, an interactive project about it. Um, much later in the year, um, something that I'm particularly proud of, um, and, and in fact, throughout the year, we had been working on a project um, about uh, toxic releases um, from uh, chemical plants in the United States. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we one of the things we talked about was giving people access to their own information, helping people see how big national uh, phenomena affect them and their families and their communities. Um, and so the project that we built has sub kilometer, square kilometer resolution um, that lets you see the entire United States, look up your address um, and see chemical plants near you um, that are releasing uh, chemicals that might increase your risk of getting cancer. Um, and so this is a project that my uh, colleagues, uh, Le Leila Yunz and uh, Al Shaw worked on. Um, and they were able to build a big map of the United States. Um, and we worked with reporters across our newsroom on stories about that as well. So when you do projects like this, is it the case that, you know, you have to sit down and say, you know, this is a ProPublica project, or is it like kind of in the DNA of the organization that actually people just know that, that, that this is the right kind of project. People just know when they're suggesting pitching something to you that this is the kind of thing that will, will fly. I mean, we're a very, you know, every newsroom says they're reporter-led, but we, we mean it. Um, it's a very reporter-led organization. It, we really feel strongly that, um, that reporters are the people who have the insights that you know, they're the people who can find the story and kind of find the, the sort of central outrage or the central, you know, thing that might need to change um, and that, that might have, have the makings of a story. Um, and so the conversation almost always starts um, with a reporter, or in our case, we call them news app developers, but they're very much reporters as well. Um, they bring those insights and those pitches up to uh, up to editors like me and, and like my other colleagues at ProPublic and, and we champion them and help them and, and kind of send them on their way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, ProPublica is, we're a, we're a, a, a nonprofit organization um, and, you know, we're not just a newsroom that just seeks to publish stories for our readers. Um, we want to have impact in the real world, and it's very much our mission to have to make the world a better place through our journalism. Um, and so, on some level, it's uh, straightforward for us to look at a story pitch and to understand if it makes sense for ProPublica because we're about impact, and we see in stories um, chances for impact. Now, we don't know what that impact would be, and we don't think it's our place to advocate for one individual, one kind of specific outcome. Um, but we, you know, we look for injustices where where change is possible, um, and so it's kind of straightforward for us to figure out what a ProPublica story is because we look and we ask ourselves if impact is possible. So you talked a little bit about size. I mean, obviously, you really punch above your weight there, and one of the things you've kind of led the way in is really kind of collaborative reporting. 
where you're bringing groups of news organisations together. How did that become such a special, specialism for ProPublica? What do you think it kind of adds to the field? You know, it's funny. I've been at ProPublica since 2008, since just before we started publishing the website. Um, and so I was very much present at the at the creation of a lot of, of things. And I can tell you that we did not think when we were making all of these decisions in 2008 that, you know, frankly, our biggest contribution to news was was collaborating. Um, you know, and we collaborate in lots of different ways, and we are kind of always thinking of new ways to collaborate. Um, but in fact, it has been incredibly powerful for us. I mean, it started literally because we were so small that we didn't think anybody was going to read us. We couldn't have impact if nobody read us. And so we thought, let's do our best to get on A1 of the New York Times or to get on A1 if it's a Florida story, uh, you know, of the Miami Herald or get an A1 of the Albany Times Union, um, if it was a New York State story, you know, kind of thinking about how to work with newsrooms uh, that really still mattered to new lawmakers, sort of powerful people, and how do we share our stories with them so that our stories can have impact. That really was the start. It was quite that simple. Um, you know, but since then, we've partnered in all sorts of ways where we've worked with local reporters, kind of paired up with local reporters, paired up with uh, national reporters, with other newsrooms. Um, we've shared data with local newsrooms. Um, one of the things that we did with our ToxMap project was uh, to share it, to give it an embargoed access to uh, Gray TV um, news uh, uh, programs so that they could create news packages for their local TV audiences. Again, always, you know, because, you know, our mission is not to publish a newspaper, it is to have impact. And if that means giving our story away for free, if that means giving another reporter early access to our stories so that they can write about it too, we'll do it because it increases the chance for impact. Yeah, I mean, Election <laughs> Land is still, is still one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on in my life. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah no, that, me, me, me too. Project. I mean, Election Land is a project where... Um, you know, I like to tell people that I was briefly the editor of the largest news organization in the country uh, for one night. Uh, but uh, Election Line in 2016 was a, a project where we worked with uh, Google News Lab, uh, WNYC, the uh, uh, CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, uh, which has a longer name that I have momentarily forgotten, um, and, and lots of other organizations to really kind of create a large a journalistic data set of uh, problems at polling places where people were actually unable to vote uh, because of long lines or because of broken machines or things like that, um, or because of misinformation, which was the, the story of the year in 2016, if you recall. And, you know, we didn't just write a bunch of stories ourselves. Um, we shared it with hundreds of newsrooms around the country. I think we ended up, Simon, what was it, around 1,100 people um, were working that night um, watching watching the elections, uh, not reporting the results, which lots of people also were doing, um, but uh, but you know, but reporting on where polling places were shutting down and where were people unable to vote, um, and so we were you know sharing that freely with newsrooms around the country, giving that for free because we wanted to have impact. We wanted those polling places to get back open, um, and we felt that um, voting is central to democracy, and you know we should. If we can use journalism to defend it, we would. Before you mentioned that, uh, uh, besides uh, working, you know, managing teams of people at ProPublica, you are also a 
sort of like an amateur historian of data journalism and also an observer of, of data journalism. And um, I, I'm curious about whether you could talk a little bit about what trends you see in data journalism or things that get you excited uh, in the near future of the, of the field? Sure. I mean, you know, first, well, one thing that doesn't excite me that concerns me, um, I, think, I think we've seen a lot of amazing projects around COVID. That, that doesn't concern me. Let's sort of start with the good thing. We're seeing a lot of incredible work around COVID, uh, both terrific visualizations, but also terrific just data gathering, some, some sort of really what the New York Times did, what the COVID tracking project did in 2020 and in 2021 was a real public service, though, you know, the New York Times won the uh, public service Pulitzer for it, all very well deserved. Um, and I think some incredible work was done. And I think genuinely news saved lives during COVID. Um, but in terms of the kind of innovation that we were seeing um, before uh, COVID, I, I, I look around, I, I, this is something I'm I'm obsessed with. I kind of look at data projects as soon as they come out, especially innovative data visualization projects. And, and I have to say, I, I feel a little bit like the industry is in a lull. Um, I have not seen, you know, we sometimes talk about snowfall. Snowfall is 2009, right? So snowfall is more than a decade ago. Um, and while we're seeing absolutely incredible work since then, you know, I, I kind of feel like, and I'm, I'm curious if, if you two agree and how you two feel about this. Um, I, and I haven't seen you know, anything that's really kind of bowled me over in, in a while. So, um, yes, I have observed that myself. Um, sort of like there is sort of like a, like, like a stop or, or, or a, a slower in innovation in some sense. We see, you know, fewer novelties in the field. Uh, but perhaps contrary to you, um, I, I am not that concerned about it. I think that you know, innovation happens in sudden bursts of energies in which you know, new technologies and new tools are invented. But then we need time to adopt those technologies and learn how to use those technologies properly. And maybe we are in that period. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel optimistic as well. And I'll tell you why. And it's really not necessarily so much about national news because I'm, I'm less worried about it because I think there's a lot of money there. But what I am seeing is a lot of work going on at the local journalism level so now i'm finding you know any local news outlet we i talk to they've always got a data journalist now and that never used to be the case and and the kind of extrapolation of that is also globally now you're seeing tons and tons of these kind of sole practitioner data journalists in countries around the world developing world or everywhere that you weren't really seeing in the same way before so although yeah i think i think I think you're right about the fits and bursts of innovation. I think, you know, I was looking for, for projects to, to choose for, you know, like projects of the year. And I think it'll be interesting to see the Sigmas when um, when we get the entries in next year, which is, is just launching, by the way. You should look out the Sigmas. I'll put a link in the description. Um, but I, my feeling is that a lot of this stuff is now happening at a local level. Like there's stuff in San Francisco, the Chronicle, that, is fascinating around the census and the work that um, Cheryl Phillips is doing with the big local news project at Stanford in supporting local journalists is actually really, really interesting. So maybe there is, it is happening, but it's just at a different level now. I was about to, I was about to add that um, a, a, we have also seen the return of older forms 
of uh, journalism, particularly visual journalism. So one of the things that I complained about in the recent past was that newsrooms were focusing perhaps too much on exclusively data visualization and forgetting other types of infographics that are also extremely important, like visual explanations, for instance, illustration-driven, animation-driven visual explanations. And we saw a, a little bit of a return to that, to that genre, to that form. For instance, there is very, this very popular project by El Pais uh, last year, I think that I have it in front of me right now, titled A Room, A Bar, and A Classroom, How the Coronavirus is Spread Through the Air which is sort of this traditional infographic of a room and it shows how the virus spreads. It's really, really, really well done, but it's also very classic. It's also very old fashioned. Well, this story is essentially the most viewed story ever in the history of El Pais, right? Which sort of like tells you something that maybe we should not worry that much about innovating in terms of form or in terms of technology. We should worry much more about what you mentioned before, the impact that we have on people, right? You make a great point, and in fact, you know, if you look at, you know, maybe what I'm, I'm, what I'm reacting to is innovation in presentation. But in fact, we've seen remarkable innovation when it comes to data gathering and especially data sharing. <clears throat> the COVID tracking project had something like, which is a, a project that the Atlantic uh, magazine was involved in. Was a, was a huge effort to gather state and local data about uh, COVID cases, hospitalization rates, death rates, and things like that, um, which was very, very difficult because there was not a single government source to get all of this data. Um, their data was cited by 7,700, according to their website, news organizations. Um, the New York Times had an even bigger effort. I think there are some 100-person bylines um, at the New York Times for some of their COVID data stuff. Um, and they have a Git repository that I checked was has been updated today, um, uh, with you know share, fully sharing all of the data that they got. And so you're right, actually. Maybe the the you know what I'm reacting to is just the the kind of public facing stuff, but in fact, a huge amount of stuff is happening behind the scenes. Um, absolutely. I think that's a good point to think about as as we you know we've come the last few minutes. I would love us to kind of go around and just have a chat about any projects which we've just noticed recently. As is, are we in a dearth of data? There's some rather interesting things going on. I think there are a few fun things going on. So there were a couple of things that I wanted to mention that um, I'd love us to, to do. So I, I mentioned the Chronicle. Um, there's uh, Naomi Samida, who's a great data journalist, who just did a recent piece on which county in California is the most Californian. Um, based on the census data, which I love, it's just it's like it's a written piece, which is like very simple uh, uh, kind of cartograms in a, a really nice piece. And then um, something else I, I enjoyed was the the upshots um, and a flag piece on the black mortality gap. Just really nice use for kind of a, a story which makes me kind of angry and um, uh, and but um, kind of empowered at the same time and just really beautiful visualizations. But then the thing that I kind of, uh, the last thing I wanted to mention, which is something that I've, I've a group that I've really liked for a while is Zooniverse. I don't know if you guys follow Zooniverse. They're this weird kind of collaborative uh, crowdsourcing organization. And um, they've done some really interesting things like, you know, crowdsourcing photos of the surface of the moon and so on. 
and they did a recent project uh, called Weather Rescue at Sea, which I just love the idea of this project. It's taking old uh, uh, ships' logbooks and recording the, the 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 weather conditions over time. You've got this incredible source of information which can tell us about like climate change all in one in one project. And I love that they're still going, and I love that this this project is the kind of thing that's not going to result in something next week. Or maybe, you know, not next month, but uh, but maybe next year, and that's 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 great. I think. So I'm going to go, Scott. Your turn. Put you on the spot. Okay, my turn. Um, a couple of things I would love to talk about. Actually, just something that you reminded me of. The Washington Post did a story. I'm I'm trying to pull it up as fast as I can. Um, about it was about birds. I'm sorry. This is going to take a second. Birds um, are great. Uh, birds bird data are great. Brilliant. I love bird data. Uh, the Washington Post. Did you see this? The, they did a project um, because it used citizen science. Uh, which birds are the biggest jerks at the feeder? Um, an analysis of sort of uh, which birds, um, an analysis of birds at feeders. So uh, they they got this through. Um, I think this was the Cornell Ornithology Lab, um, and they added thousands of rows of data from citizen science, which were very similar and some beautiful, um, beautiful graphics inside that story as well. Uh, but I was going to mention another Washington Post project. I think the Washington Post team is just terrific. Um, they did a project um, about Africa um, and about the rise, um, population rise in African cities. Um, I'm also trying to bring up really quickly. Um, but there is a the project, the, the story specifically um, about Lagos, which I think was the first story um, has some truly beautiful photography in it, uh, but also some terrific interactive graphics um, of the type that we were just talking about, sort of uh, um, very much kind of rooted in best practices for beautiful infographics, uh, but also really engaging and made me want to understand the subject more and to dig further. Great. Great. Well, I, I can't wait to see those. And we'll, like I say, we'll put links in the description and everybody can have a look. and. Alberto, your turn. I, I I haven't seen that latest project about Africa, but I saw the I saw the birds project by the Washington yeah. Post, and I absolutely loved it as well. It was very funny, but at the same time very informative, right? Um, not necessarily data. Oh, oh well, that project was data journalism, right? It's citizen, yeah, they did, yeah, yeah, like the data, right? So yeah, it's data journalism in yep. some sense. But some of the projects that I liked the most last year, if we put aside all the COVID related. A data projects which sort of like sucked all the energy from newsrooms, in my opinion. I mean, very recently, the Washington Post has been in a hiring spree and they hire people like Simon du Croquet from Brazil. They also hired Artur Galocha from, from Spain. Artur used to work for, for El País and now he's moving to the Washington Post. And he has already published a few pieces at the Washington Post. And one of them I really like is not data journalism. It's more explanatory visual journalism. It's about the DART project by NASA, which is a spacecraft that NASA plans to use or wants to test to divert the trajectory of, of, of asteroids that may hit the Earth. Oh, I think I saw that. It's really well done. It's very old-fashioned, right? It's, it's vector illustrations, animations, really beautifully rendered, really well done, very well put together a story. I really, really like that. It's a, it's a great story well told, which at the end is what we should aim for in journalism, I, I believe. I don't think I can top that as a way to end the podcast. So 
with that, I can say thank you, Scott, for joining us. You'll be back, I hope, next year. And um, yes, thanks so much for having me.